Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you that we, your people, can gather together to worship you. We thank you that part of that includes reading, studying, digging deeper into your word and the doctrines of your church that come from your word. And so we pray today that we would be faithful to your word and that we would also learn to be good students of it. May your Holy Spirit guide us and direct us as we continue our study today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so just as a, a very quick review, because we've got a lot to cover and a little bit of time to do it uh, today, uh, but last week, you may recall that we looked at uh, how that, that, that we are to, uh, as Christians, we are to rightly handle the Word of God. That's part of our calling, we're not only to just be in the Word, but we are to rightly handle it. We are to enjoy it with our minds. Uh, we are to learn to discern it. And then I took us to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, you may recall for your notes, Westminster Confession chapter 1, point six, seven, and 9 deal specifically with the reading and studying of God's Word. We are to look to Scripture to know God. We are to not miss the essentials. We are to know that it's the Holy Spirit who illuminates Scripture. We are to develop diligence in it. We don't just go to God's Word and, well, of course, I'm going to know everything about it. I can just read it however I want to. No, we have to become disciplined and develop it doesn't come naturally. Dil diligence, we are to avoid eisegesis, which means reading into Scripture, and we are to look for the basic meaning of Scripture. And so all of these, the confession points us to uh, in reading and studying Scripture. Then, la then what I, I got into briefly last week is what many of you have heard me say before is one of the key points of studying God's Word is learning context. Many times, the matter of context can solve... Whoop. You can tell how often we use this whiteboard, right? We'll see if that's got no ink in that one either. Uh, imagine at this moment I'm writing the word context up here. And nothing in that one. So... Uh, that tells you we're over here very rarely. Um, but I just wrote on the board, context, uh, which is uh, on, on your notes. And of course, on the video slide, the graphic will uh, come up. Uh, but we are to read in context. Again, last week, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through this really quickly uh, because I, I covered it last week. But just as a review, what we're talking about when we talk about context is we're talking about, for example, when I am reading Scripture, and we'll just pick on uh, John 3.16, for example, and I come to a, a word, um, life, eternal life, in, in that. I may start with that word, but I'm not going to stay there and uh, obsess over it, what I'm going to do is to better understand what Jesus is talking about there. I'm going to move from word to sentence, and from sentence to paragraph, and from paragraph to chapter, and from chapter to book, and from book to author, and from the author to the provenance, that is the circumstances in which the, uh, the, the, the book was written, and uh, the writer, as it were, that God chose to pen that book of our canon of Scripture. The second thing that we looked at, thanks, the second thing that we looked at 
Okay, so just to make me feel better. There we go. Context. The, then in, within context, what we looked at is when we study context, then it helps us with seeming contradictions. Um, for example, uh, looking at Romans 3.28, where the Apostle Paul says that we are justified by faith apart from works. Then we go over into James and we read that we are justified by works and not by faith alone. And, and if you just take those two verses and just say, well, I'm just going to focus on these two verses, you will find a contradiction. But if you read Romans 3.28 in its setting, not only in its sentence, but within its chapter and within the book of Romans you're going to find that Paul is talking about something very different than if we go to James chapter 2, verse 24, and read it in context. We're going to find that Paul and James were talking about two different things. Just briefly, for those of you that weren't here uh, last week, uh, what Paul is talking about in Romans 3.28 is he is a pushback against legalism, specifically as he began uh, chapter 2 and leading into 3, addressing the legalism uh, that the Jews were prone to. And so he is showing and pointing to chapter 4, where he's going to talk about that Abraham was justified by faith faith, and so it's a pushback against legalism. In James chapter 2, verse 24, if we read it in context, what we find is James isn't talking about that at all. In fact, what he's talking about is the works that flow from our justification by faith, or as uh, we say, is that we are justified by faith, but our faith is never alone. That's right, never alone. Works are evidence of saving faith. Then, in context, we are to also beware of words that may have different meaning. Uh, sometimes we will want to read a word and then we'll want to say, well, that's what that word means in every sentence. Every time that I come across that, Bible, that word in the Bible, uh, that means the same thing. And, and of course, that's remarkably dangerous in English because it's a translation of the Greek or the Hebrew. But even if it's the same word in the original language, those words can have different meanings. And I gave the example last week of the word flesh. Uh, you can read flesh, for example, in the New Testament, and it can deal with our sin nature. But you can also read the word flesh and it will deal with our physical being, our physical body. Ephesians chapter, is it Ephesians chapter 2? I believe it is. Yeah, Ephesians chapter 2 uses the exact same Greek word and uses it in both those different ways. So you have to be a good reader to understand word meaning and you do that by reading within context. And then last week, uh, I said that we should avoid rigid translations. Um, each book of the Bible can be classified within a genre of literature. And we're going to go into this, not today, but we're going we're to go into this in, in greater depth in uh, probably next week. But within those, those genres, certain times we will read them, the words within that genre are different. And I'll give you a, a great example. 
So if you read Psalm 119, Psalm 119 is the largest psalm in the Bible, and it is, uh, it is so to speak, an acrostic. It, it's actually laid out in the alphabet uh, of, the he, of the Hebrew alphabet. And so it just goes in, in alphabetical order in each paragraph, so to speak, or you might say stanza, is organized according to the Hebrew alphabet. And within that order, then the, the poet, uh, more, more than likely David, will then use language to reinforce arguments that he's making in prior and following stanzas. And one of the examples of this is the word law. Uh, law within Psalm 119, David uses a myriad of words to mean law. And he will use law to mean word, God's word. But if you read the poetry rigidly, that only means law. Or this word he used here, so that has a different meaning, and so I'm going to define it differently. All of a sudden, you're going to lose the beauty of the poetry. And if you lose the beauty of the poetry of Psalm 119, you're going to lose the meaning of Psalm 119. But if you read it and understand that in reading it within the context, that those words are defined within their context, not bringing them into the context. And then finally, and this is where we left off last week, is that reading in context helps with application. Um, oftentimes, uh, and you've probably heard this before, you probably heard it from me, is that sometimes someone can read a Bible verse and uh, they can uh, interpret it a certain way and then apply it a certain way, and yet their application may be biblical, but their interpretation isn't. Sometimes you can come up with something that is right and godly and just and righteous, and, and it's just not what the Bible verse means. And so one of the, the benefits of reading within context is, is that you don't jump the gun. You don't go running off down the trail thinking that you're ready for application without first really understanding what that verse or passage means. Secondly, and this is where we are today, we are going to understand that as Christ is the living Word, then there is a centrality of Jesus throughout all of Scripture. Ultimately, ultimately, the Bible is about God sending our Savior. That's, that's the, uh, theologians will call it the, the meta-narrative of Scripture. Uh, the meta-narrative is, is, is that God is to redeem His elect by means of a Savior. Now, we see that overtly, in some places, we see it veiled in other places, but nevertheless, we must always remember the centrality of Jesus. Now, I'm going to go through a couple of verses, and they're, they're in your handout, but I want to, I want to give a real quick clarification. Um, what, what I'm saying, and, and, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm getting this from, from Sinclair Ferguson, what, what I'm not saying, what he's not saying is, we're not saying that you practice eisegesis. Uh, we're not saying that you read a passage and then read Jesus into that passage as if he's really in that passage. 
Now, he is in that passage because he is indeed the living Word of God, but he is often in that passage, especially in the Old Testament, by virtue of the grander picture of that passage. I mean, for example, and, I'm, and I'll have this in my notes, I'm just, I'm just laying this out here, but you would say, okay, John, where, where's Jesus in Ruth? Jesus' name never comes up in Ruth. In fact, there's never any talk about uh, the prophetic word and the Redeemer and so forth and so on. So where is it in Ruth? And yet, if we go through Ruth and we see pictures of, for example, forgiveness and dedication and, in fact, to a certain extent, mediation, and we get to the end of it, and we hear a, a, a name that, that for every Bible student goes ding, 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 ding. We hear the name Boaz, and, and all of a sudden we start thinking, well, then David and the Davidic line and the Davidic covenant and, and Matthew chapter 1, and it ties it all together. So we, we see Jesus, and He is central to Scripture, but it doesn't mean that we practice eisegesis. It doesn't mean that we're just constantly going, well, you know, and I gave the example a couple of weeks ago of, of the uh, identifying red thread uh, that was used by Rahab to be identified by Israel so that she and her family would not be uh, destroyed in uh, the attack of Jericho. Uh, well, we don't need to read into that and go, well, you know, there's Jesus. That scarlet thread was the blood of Jesus, and so there's the gospel right there for us. Nope, it's not. It's not ever been that. It's not ever going to be that. But the gospel's there and Jesus is there. And you say, where? And I say, well, if you want to see the best place, go to Matthew chapter 1. There she is. And we go back and we see that our God is, in fact, a forgiving God. Our God is a redeeming God. We even see the idea of election. We see the idea of salvation. All of that, in the grander scheme, we see Jesus in the totality of Scripture. All right, here's a couple of verses uh, that are on your handout. John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40, Jesus said, You search the Scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. In other words, what's Jesus saying? Saying, you're, you're students of the Bible. In fact, you're really good students of the Bible, and you're missing it. Because that which the Scriptures are pointing toward is me, Jesus says. They, they bear witness to me. Or in Luke chapter 24, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. And you think about this. So He's walking along the road to Emmaus, and He's talking, and He's sharing, and He's drawing from... All. He's drawn from Esther. <laughs> Find Jesus and Esther. Well, Jesus did. He's drawn from all of Scripture. All of Scripture and showing how they testified of Himself. And then later we read, They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures? 
And then also, it says, then he opened their minds to understand uh, the Scriptures, which goes back to to last week. I mean, we understand it's the Holy Spirit uh, who opens our eyes, allows us to see these things. Uh, Someone who doesn't want to see Jesus in Scripture is not going to see Jesus in Scripture, right? (laughs) Okay, so it's the Holy Spirit uh, is the one who gives this. And then we're reminded of, of what Paul said to Timothy, he said, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And, and again, the idea there is that, that Paul is saying to Timothy, uh, you, you were raised in a God-fearing home. You were raised uh, perhaps uh, in, a, in a synagogue that taught the Word of God. You had good teachers, probably your mom and grandmother, and, and they poured into you. Now, all that Bible knowledge that you have, now that is a testimony one giant arrow to Christ, believing in that salvation is in Christ. Now, again, this does not mean that we are to read Jesus into every verse or every passage. Um, so, for example, um, and this, this, I think I'm, I may have this in, in your mouth, but I mean, in your mouth, in your, in your uh, handout. Uh, but Jesus, in, so in First Corinthians chapter one. I was thinking of the name of that book. I don't know how mouth inserted itself into that sentence, but there you go. Um, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul refers to Jesus as, quote-unquote, the wisdom of God. And therefore, we may understand that Jesus is personified wisdom. So, for, for example... Um, when we, we read in Proverbs, and it is speaking in a personified way, I, wisdom, say this in, in the Proverbs. Um, it, it is not eisegesis to say, aha, then Jesus, as Paul is identified as the wisdom of God, He is that wisdom. And even though the Proverbs will use a feminine pronoun in referring to she or lady wisdom, again, the idea is, is as Jesus is the wisdom of God, we can understand that as Him speaking. What that doesn't mean is that the Proverbs are all veiled references about Jesus. We can read a a proverb and and you can read it and you can go, you know, um, John, that proverb, that sounds to me like that, that Solomon or, or the writer, the sage is saying, um, we got to work hard because hard work is a good thing. But you know, I, I'm, just not, I'm just not seeing Jesus. Well, maybe, maybe if I thought about Jesus' work on the cross or I thought about, no, you, you read the proverb right. It's about work. That's it. It's only about work. It's not ever going to be about anything other than exactly what the, 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 the sage is saying in the Proverbs. But 
if we take it from that verse into the greater context of Proverbs, we see that that note, that, that, that note, that proverb about work is part of the greater understanding of God's wisdom. And when then we understand that that is part of wisdom and wisdom is Christ, then we understand, aha, there's Jesus in the Scripture. So again, at the, at the, for the sake of... Uh, being redundant, uh, the, the point is, is that uh, to read Jesus is not into Scripture is not to practice eisegesis, but it is to be a good, diligent student to see that in the grand narrative of Scripture, we are going to see, although not in every word and every verse and every passage, uh, and certainly not every book overtly, but we are going to see it directing us toward Christ. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. He says, and he uses literary language here, uh, which I think is helpful. He says, because the dominant plot line of the whole Bible is what God accomplishes through His Son, and in the power of the Spirit, from start to finish, these 66 books tell a single, multifaceted story whose central character is Jesus Christ and what He does. He is the one through whom all things were created, in whom all things were held together, and by whom God brings reconciliation. And so we see that, but again, it's not always in that specific locale, but it's the general understanding of that. Thirdly, we are to look at the story. Now, I heard a southerner and I am a Southerner, I heard a Southerner tell me uh, that I needed to be careful using the word story because a story is a lie. Because my mama told me, don't you tell a story. And, uh, well, that's true uh, in that sense. And that is not what I mean here. Uh, I mean the narrative, the account, the literature so to speak, the story, and Scripture has within its story, and I think I have this on your handout, don't I? The story, and underneath it, the first thing, do I have the grand narrative? Okay, excellent. So think about it this way, and I, this is a really helpful way to sort of, of move in reading Scripture. So let's just say, for example, um, I'm, I'm reading, uh, well, Pick, pick a Bible, a book, Malachi, or, or, or whatever. I'm, I'm reading a book, and so I'm going to read that book, and first of all, I'm going to want to understand how does this book fit within the grand narrative of Scripture? So what, what do I mean by the grand narrative of Scripture? Well, if we had time, and we don't this morning, but if we were to go and to read Genesis chapter 1, through Genesis 2, verse 3, that would give us a, a beginning and understanding of creation within the grand narrative of Scripture. And then, if we put that there, and then I said, okay, now let's read Genesis chapter 3 through Revelation 22. We definitely don't have time to do that today. Uh, but... If we were to do that, then what we're going to see is in Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall, and then we see reconciliation. In fact, we see reconciliation in... You can't get out of chapter 3, can you? 
You get to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and we're already seeing reconciliation there, the, the uh, proto-evangelium, as theologians would refer it, that early gospel. And then we see that all of Scripture is developing that grand narrative. So you keep that in mind when you go to whatever book you're, you're studying right now, Malachi. You go to it and you go, okay, creation, fall, reconciliation. Where does this book fit within that grand narrative? Then, secondly, we look at the story within the story. The story within the story. So, for example, in, in the fall, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We're reading this, and, and, and I, as I have said before, is, is people wonder, what was the worst day in human history? I wonder, was it the dropping of a bomb? Was it the Holocaust? What was the, the, the absolute worst day in human history? The answer is Genesis chapter 3. Fall from perfect righteousness into sin. That's the worst story ever. But the story within the story, as I said in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between, the wom- between your offspring and her offspring. No, 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 no. That's the siren going off in your head as readers, right? Because the Hebrew word offspring is the word seed. A woman's seed? How can a woman have a seed? A man's the only one who passes the seed. Huh. Well, now that's weird. And then you read a little bit longer and further, and he goes, And he will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Oh, man, that sounds like bad news and good news all in the same thing. Well, within that, think about this, and there's three words that I think are very helpful in thinking through this, is within that story within the story, you see... Con- I this one's gone too. Sorry, Steve. Don't give me another one. Uh, you see, conflict. There's conflict within the story between the serpent and the woman. We see it start and the temptation and it's brewing and you go, ooh, this is getting kind of dicey, right? And then you dig a little bit deeper and then you see continuity. Because within continuity, verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 15 talks about your seed and her seed. There must be importance there for the duplicity and this continuity between offspring. And then we see conflict between you and he. And so there's going to be a conflict here. That's the story within the story. And we find that as we work our way through Scripture. Understand the grand narrative first, then understand the story within the story. So my my example of, of Ruth would, would, would fit here, is if you say, okay, I love the book of, of Ruth, um, and I, I, I love the testimony of just the graciousness of this woman to her, her mother-in-law, and how God provides for both of them in an amazing way, and all of this, and it's such a good love story, isn't it? Now, where's the story within the story? Let's say just a minute ago is that all along, the writer of Ruth is getting us to the last passage, isn't he? Getting us down to a baby's born, and that baby that's born ends up leading to the Davidic line and to Christ Himself. And so, that's the idea of a story within the story. And then thirdly, on your handout, is 
plot line. Everybody loves a plot line. It's why when, when Sydney and I are reading our Bibles in, in the mornings, and we're reading through Scripture all the way, and, and we're going, and when we finally get to Judges and 1 Samuel, and this is this is good. This is like reading, it's like reading a novel. And all of a sudden we're hearing about Hophni and Phineas, and we're we're hearing about King Saul, and then we're hearing about David, and then we're hearing about Solomon, and then you know it goes downhill from there. But you know, the, the point is, is that we look, but in our reading, we look for the plot line. And I'll give you a, a great example, and all of you will be familiar with this. It'll ring a bell, but you need to learn to apply this in all of Scripture. Joseph. So what, what's the plot, plot line of Joseph in Genesis? Think about this with me. We have his dad's favoritism. No bueno, right? Favorite child, favorite coat, not good. Breeds jealousy among his brothers. Then we have the faithfulness of God to provide for him. But then it seems like there's an abandonment. And he's been left in prison to, to rot and die seemingly. Then we see recognition of him. And then we see exaltation. And then what's the last thing that we know about Joseph in his amazing life? He's forgotten. Pharaoh doesn't even remember who he was. But that's the plot line. That's the plot line of Joseph. But also, we see the fulfillment of God's word regarding slavery in Egypt. Because when we hear that Joseph was forgotten, Pharaoh doesn't remember him, he doesn't remember anything about him, and Israel is enslaved, because you've been following the plot line, you go, hmm, yeah, I remember that God told Abraham something about Egyptian slavery for hundreds of years. Yeah. Ah, I see now. The life of Joseph is tying this together. And so you're following this plot line of God keeping His covenant with Abraham and then Exodus. And you get to, and this is one of my favorite questions to ask, how does the Ten Commandments, located in Exodus chapter 20, how do the Ten Commandments begin? Somebody, step out there for me. How do, the, how do the commandments... You don't get the answer because I know you know the answer. How do they begin? See, this is where everybody's supposed to go. You shall have no other gods before you. But that's not how they begin, is it? Don, how do they begin? That's right. That's exactly right. I, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of... The land of Egypt, it is the story of redemption. I am your redeeming God, therefore you shall have no other gods before me, so forth and so on. And so we hear the, uh, the indicative of the gospel in, Roman, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. We hear the imperative of the moral law of God in the verses that follow. But all of that, you see, is part of that plot line. And so if we were to go all the way back to God's covenant with Abraham and follow that plot line along, when we get to Exodus 20, we go, yeah. That, I get it. That, that's, this is what God is working out here. I'm now seeing the gospel. I'm now seeing this. 
I've got to be quick. I only have a couple of more minutes. Fourthly, we are to apply biblical logic. And that's I just said that, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Biblical logic is this, is that God first gives indicatives before He gives imperatives. So, for example, if you had your Bibles in front of you, if you're taking notes, certainly, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, which is what Don just quoted. That is an indicative, right? God is saying, this is who I am. Because, in fact, he uses uh, the, the Hebrew word Yahweh, identifying himself. This is who I am. And your God. This is who I am to you. It doesn't carry forward so well in, in English. But the general idea is there, is that this is who I am. This is my relationship to you. I am your covenant God. I'm the one who chose you, not you choosing me. I'm the one who, in fact, has redeemed you. You didn't get a get-out-of-jail-free card. I brought you out of Egypt. That's the gospel. That's the, that's the indicative, right? God has done what we could not do that we might be right with Him, that we might be His children. And again, we see that, that early gospel within that. But then... God proceeds from there by giving the imperative. And the imperative is in chapter 20, verse 3 of Exodus, you shall have no other gods before me, so forth and so on. And so biblical logic helps us to avoid thinking of there being a disparity between the Old and New Testament. And again, it is the Old Testament, there is the New Testament, and there are things in the Old Testament that are veiled, that are revealed in the New Testament. But what we must be very careful of, uh, for example, is falling into the trap of thinking that somehow the Old Testament saints were saved differently than the New Testament saints. You probably heard it argued before. Well, you know, the Old Testament saints, they had the law, so they obeyed the law and they were saved. Well, that's not what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. He says that Abraham was saved by faith, as were all of the Old Testament saints. And so we see this gospel continuity, that is biblical logic. And then finally, and we're going to go into this in next Sunday and the next, we need to look at the literary character. Each part of the Bible, and I want to emphasize this, each part of the Bible must. So if I had it on your hand, and I didn't, but I do a capital M, a capital U, a capital S, capital... Every book of the Bible must, must, must be read according to its literary character. So if you are trying to read Revelation, like you're trying to read Romans, it's going to get really weird really fast, Right? Or as, as in, in uh, his sermon series on the, the book of, of Revelation, and Sinclair Ferguson says, is that when you're reading the book, going from Romans to Revelation, you go from this didactic teaching. You've been in the classroom, and Professor Paul has given you these incredible notes and all of this data and laid it all out for you. And then you get to, to Revelation, and John says, I have a picture book for you. 
Let's look at the pretty pictures together. And, and, and you can't read them the same. And so you've got to read prose as prose. You've got to read poetry as poetry. You've got to read wisdom literature, which we're going to talk about quite a bit, as wisdom literature, and even within wisdom literature. I mean, here's a, here's a great example, and I'm going to give this to you because I've taught on Proverbs. Now I'm preaching through Ecclesiastes. You go through Proverbs... <clears throat> As students of wisdom literature, you understand this. You go through Proverbs and you go, that's truth. Truisms. That's the way that the world ought to work. That's the way it is. Good should be rewarded. Bad should be punished. I get it. I love the Proverbs. And then you get to Job and God says, now that I've given you the norm, now that I've given you the truisms, now I'm going to give you the exception." Well, what are you doing, God? You just gave me these rules, these norms, these truths, and now you're going to give me the exception? And he's like, yep, now I'm going to give you the exception in one man's life, and I'm going to do it in lengthy Hebrew poetry. <laughs> and then you get to Ecclesiastes. And the man who wrote the bulk of the Proverbs now is writing and saying, everything that is in Proverbs is true. That is the way that God works. Now, I'm going to explain to you all of the exceptions in life. How things don't work the way that they are supposed to work according to the Proverbs. Well, you've got to understand wisdom literature, of course, to understand these distinctions. I'll go into them in much greater depth. You've got to understand the distinction between prophecy, gospels, epistles, the apocalyptic vision of Revelation, so forth and so on. We're going to go through each of those literary genres that I hope will then help you be a better reader of Scripture. I'm way over time. Let me pray for us. A gracious God in heaven, we do thank you for your word. And we thank you that we can open it and read it, that we can study it, that your Holy Spirit leads us and directs us. We pray that you would help us to develop the diligence to be good and faithful handlers of your word. That we may read it, that we may know you, that you may be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.